Genesis chapter 45 as we make our way through this book, considering uh, the story of Joseph, but the broader story of the sons of Jacob, in particular Joseph as well as Judah. We come now to chapter 45, and so I'd like to read to us the entire chapter today. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 45. And Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. 
But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Or the grass withers and the, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of obedience for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved, the Lord Joseph is the second in command over all the land of Egypt, and he has been testing his brothers, all the while keeping his identity a secret, but testing his brothers to see if, in fact, they had changed from their former ways. Those brothers who, out of hatred and jealousy, attacked him, plotted his death, and ultimately sold him as a slave in Egypt, now are standing before him. And so he instituted a series of tests to see if they would show remorse, if they would uh, show compassion towards their brother, if they would not uh, show signs of jealousy as they had before. Well, as he instituted these series of tests upon his brothers, we see that each and every time he, does, he gives them a test, they actually pass. These men do show remorse. They do show love and compassion and solidarity to their brothers. They do show that they are, in fact, changed men. But it wasn't until the speech of Judah that we saw last week at the end of chapter 44, where Judah himself pleads with Joseph and, 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 and offers himself to serve as a, as a slave in place of his brother Benjamin in order that Benjamin might go free and be able to be reunited with his father, the one who had came up with the idea of selling Joseph as a slave, Judah, is now offering himself to be a slave so that Benjamin can go free. Well, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was the final thing uh, that ultimately caused Joseph to have his defenses break down. And we see at the beginning of our passage that he could not control himself. On previous occasions when Joseph was overcome by emotion, when he sees the remorse of his brothers, or when he sees his brother Benjamin for the first time in over 20 years, he's able to quickly excuse himself and go weep in his private chambers, and then only after regaining his composure come back and speak to his brothers. Not here. Here he begins weeping like a baby. He begins crying and he immediately orders everyone, all of his attendants, all of the Egyptians that were there serving him, all of them to leave his room so that he would be left alone with his brothers in order to reveal himself to them. You see, uh, it's interesting as we consider Egyptian culture, they actually valued restraint and a cool demeanor. Well, here Joseph is overcome by true emotion and real affection towards his family as he drops that Egyptian facade. And, and, and he's crying so loudly that everyone in his house hears his cries and word quickly begins to spread even to the household of Pharaoh himself. And we'll see his reaction a bit later in verse 16. But then we see in verse 3, for the first time, Joseph 
uh, uh, speaking to his brothers directly, perhaps for the first time, speaking to them in their own language. Because up until this point, he'd been using an interpreter. But now, for the first time, in, the, in, in their own language, he identifies himself as their long-lost brother, the one that they had sold as a slave in Egypt. And yet we see the reaction is one of complete and total shock. And their response is one of being dismayed. Literally, they were terrified in their presence. You see, as reality began to set in, they began to realize that the very one who had power over their lives, who literally was holding their lives in his hand, was the very one that they had sold as a slave, that they had mistreated so harshly some 22 years before. Even years later, we'll see that they fear retribution at his hands. They're afraid of him uh, since he has so much power. But Joseph seems to have his mind on something else because after identifying himself, the very next question he asks is, is my father still alive? You see, after Judah's impassioned speech where he pleads with him concerning his father and, and how close his father Jacob was to Benjamin and how necessary it was that they be reunited because if, if he says, if I return without Benjamin, my father, your servant, will die. And perhaps after hearing about how difficult this test has been for Jacob and, and how very near to death he has been brought through this whole trial, we see that that is Joseph's main concern as soon as he identifies himself to his brothers. He wants to see his father again. And so that's why we see that seemingly irrational question, is he still alive? Well, of course he is. Judah's just been talking about the fact that he's still alive. But clearly that is his main concern at this point. But as he's talking to his brothers and as they are standing there terrified and dumbfounded and unable to speak to him, he feels perhaps he needs to convince them that he is in fact who he says he is. And so he says in verse 4, repeats himself, I am Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt some 22 years prior. You see, he's the only one, the only other person on the face of the earth who knows what they had done because they had kept that a secret. And this is conclusive proof of his identity. But then quickly and immediately he assures them that they in fact have nothing to fear. That he had already forgiven them for what they had done. And then he informs them that God had planned all along to work things out for good. Notice what he says there in verse 5. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, this is an interesting way for him to put it, because he already said, you sold me into Egypt. But then the next breath, he says, God sent me. You see, this is the alternate story, the alternate narrative that Joseph chooses to focus on. And he repeats it three times. God sent me here. God sent me here. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. You see, rather than making himself a victim which would have been very easy for Joseph. As he found himself sold as a slave into Egypt, as he was falsely accused by his master's wife, as he was left forgotten in the dungeon, you would would imagine how easy it would be for him to play the victim and to pin all of the blame upon his brothers and to allow over 20 years that anger and resentment to build up as he blames them for uh, for all of the trials that come upon him. 
came upon him. And yet instead of that, Joseph chose to believe, to have faith in the almighty and everywhere present power of God to turn evil into good. And so that's why he assures his brothers, I have forgiven you, and God has sent me here in order to preserve life. You see, if they hadn't sold Joseph, he wouldn't have ended up in the dungeon. And he wouldn't have been able to to interpret the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. And if he wasn't able to interpret the dreams of the cupbearer, the cupbearer wouldn't have been able to remember him when Pharaoh had his dreams. And ultimately that led to not only the preservation of life in Egypt, but since that famine, that seven-year famine, was a worldwide famine, it resulted in the salvation of the entire known world as they were able to uh, accumulate and save up enough grain for the preservation of life. You see, like Noah with his family, Joseph was sent to preserve life on earth to allow the covenant community of God to flourish despite the worldwide disaster. God was preserving for himself a remnant, saving many survivors, especially of this one family that has now been reunited. And so that's why ultimately Joseph in verse 8 can tell his brothers, it was not you. You didn't send me here, but God did. That's a remarkable statement. Now notice he's not denying their culpability. He's not denying the fact that they sold him as a slave. He already said that in verse 4. But rather he is focusing here upon God's overriding actions. You see, God is so powerful that he can control all things, even the wicked intents of man's heart. Later on, he'll tell his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so by focusing upon God's actions, here as he forgives his brothers, he does not impute their sin to them. He doesn't hold it against them. And ultimately, that's what God does for us. In Christ Jesus, as he forgives us of our sins, he does not impute or credit to us the things that we do against him. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, in talking about this message of reconciliation, he summarizes it by saying that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So that's the first thing Joseph does. He doesn't... doesn't, hold it against his brothers, but rather focuses upon the work of God to turn evil into good. But not only does Joseph offer freely forgiveness to his brothers, but he goes on in verse 9 to then offer protection and provision for them and their family. He then goes on to say, you need to come down to Egypt so that I can take care of you to prevent you from coming to poverty. You see, seven years of famine is a long time. That is a lot of grain to sustain an entire family. And no doubt all of the riches that God had blessed Jacob with would be depleted as they had to continually buy grain and and perhaps even resulting in the loss of life. And so Joseph says, you come down to Egypt and I will take care of you. Notice what he says in verse 10, that you can be near me. You could be near me. It's not just, I forgive you, now go on your way, take your grain, and survive. No, Joseph wants reconciliation. He envisions a a close relationship with his family. And here we see that he is choosing to identify himself, not with the Egyptians, but with the people of God. 
In the same way that later on, another Egyptian prince, Moses, will choose rather to suffer affliction together with the people of God than to experience all the riches of Egypt. And notice who this promise is made to in verse 10. He says, he says that you will be near, that you will dwell near, you, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children. How fitting for us to read this verse in light of the baptism that we see today. This should sound familiar. You see, what Joseph is doing here is he's echoing the promises that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he will be their God, not only to them, but also to their children. And so here Joseph sees himself in the role of protector and provider sent by God, not just for his brothers and his father, but for the whole covenant community, including the children. And as we'll see, being isolated in the land of Goshen, the people of God will be brought down and isolated, literally segregated into this area uh, from the Egyptians so that they can grow from a family into a nation without the threat of intermingling with the sinful inhabitants of the land of Canaan and integrating together with them. But then Joseph, in verse 12, calls upon his brothers to serve as eyewitnesses. He says, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that is speaking to you. You see here, he summons them to be eyewitnesses of the fact that he is alive and well and ruler over all of Egypt. And then he summons them and commands them to bring that good news to their father. He says, you must tell him of all the honor, literally of all my glory in Egypt. And Benjamin, I think, is singled out not only because he was his full brother, but also because he would be the most credible witness. See, the other brothers have a pretty bad track record of telling the truth to their father. They're the ones who lied about Joseph in the first place, giving them his, his ripped coat of many colors stained in blood. And yet Benjamin would be a very credible witness to come and tell his father that Joseph is in fact alive. And so having assured them of his forgiveness he infor- and informed them of God's greater plan he, and offering his protection and provision, Joseph then shares, goes up, and he shares an emotional embrace with his brothers. He goes first to Benjamin. After telling them all that he needs to say, he then, the only thing he could do now is hold on to his brother that he hasn't seen since an infant, that he hasn't seen in over 20 years. He falls upon his neck and he weeps. Now, Benjamin, of course, would be the first for him to embrace because Benjamin would be the most disposed to do this. At this point, his other brothers still have their mouths dropped to the floor. They're still trying to process all of this unbelievable news. They're they're feeling guilt and shame and distress. And yet Benjamin, he hasn't done anything against his brother. And so that's why Joseph goes and he embraces him first. But then after having a nice long cry, Hugging it out with his brother Benjamin, he then goes to the next brother and he hugs him and kisses him. And then he goes to the next brother and then the next brother and goes all the way down to all 11 of his brothers, embracing them, letting his actions speak louder than words. And it's only after that that we read in verse 15 that his brothers were able to summon the courage to speak to him that they were able to reply. 
in verse 15. Now, what's interesting is we're not told what they said. All we're told is that they talked to him. But I guess that's really all that matters, is the actions, let, letting the actions speak louder than words. You see, now the brothers are reconciled. In, in, in being able to, to speak to their brother, we see that they accept that forgiveness. They receive that forgiveness that he offered out to them and are going to receive the provisions that he promises. But meanwhile, in verse 16, we're told about what was happening simultaneously in the household of Pharaoh. Remember back in verse 2, when Joseph was crying and sending everyone out, we read that his cries were heard throughout his house, and also in the house of Pharaoh, who no doubt lived nearby. And his word was spread to Pharaoh, and he begins to hear, what's going on with Joseph? His brothers have come. And he's reunited with them. We read uh, that he and his servants were pleased to hear of the fact that they have been reunited after all these years. They, They like a happy story too. And then so what we get in verse 17 through 20 is we read that independently of this generous offer that Joseph has offered to his brothers, independently of that we see Pharaoh repeating that and yet even expanding upon that generous offer. He talks about taking wagons for the trip so that they would be abundantly supplied even on their journey back to Canaan. He promises them the fat of the land, the best of the land of of Egypt, that they don't even have to worry about bringing anything because everything in Egypt is theirs. You see, the point of this portion is uh, is that when the Israelites first came down into Egypt, they were welcomed guests of Pharaoh himself. Of course, things would change over time. As another Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and didn't remember the the service he had rendered to to the Pharaoh, uh, as a new Pharaoh comes, the people of God will eventually become enslaved. But when they first came down, they they were Pharaoh's welcomed guests. And so after receiving uh, Joseph's offer and Pharaoh's command, we see in verse 21 that the sons of Israel did so. They set out for the land of Canaan to retrieve their father, their family, and all their belongings. And yet when Joseph sends them on their way, he has a very interesting, somewhat odd command. You notice in verse 24, as he's setting them out, he says, do not quarrel on the way. You might wonder, well, what on earth would they quarrel about? What what is he talking about here? Well, the Hebrew word, translated quarrel, could, is literally do not tremble or do not shake. And that term could be translated in one of two ways. It, it could describe uh, shaking or trembling in fear, or it could describe sh- trembling or shaking in anger. And so some commentators suggest that Joseph is urging his brothers not to fear, not to fear any sort of harm which may come upon them on their journey. Remember, there's a worldwide famine. They're going to be traveling with an abundance of supplies, grain, and and all sorts of things. And there could be robbers or or raiders or people that would come and attack them. And Joseph perhaps is telling his brothers, don't be afraid in the journey. God will protect you. Or perhaps taking it another way, if he says, do not quarrel, do not be angry with each other, perhaps he's urging them that they should not argue about who was primarily at fault as they prepare to face their father. You see, in facing their father and telling them that Joseph is alive, that's going to involve an admission of guilt. 
they're going to have to explain how it is that Joseph is still alive when they showed him his coat of many colors torn and stained in blood. And so as they prepare for this, no doubt there would be some sort of anger or hostility coming up, rising up amongst the brothers as they, as they begin to uh, quarrel about this. Or perhaps it's both. Perhaps all that Joseph is doing here is he's wishing his brothers a peaceful journey. Don't be afraid. Don't be angry. Everything's going to be okay. As they set out for their journey, it's important to remember that the first time, the previous time, that they had left Egypt to go back to their father Jacob, they were faced with the daunting task, the impossible task, of convincing their father to allow Benjamin to return to them, return with them back to Egypt. But now they have the task of convincing their father that Joseph, whom he has presumed to be dead for 22 years, is in fact alive and well, and the most powerful man next to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And so as they come bearing tidings of good news to their father, as they have not only Benjamin but Simeon who had been in prison, as they come back and they tell him this news, Joseph is alive and he is, in, he is, uh, he is exalted over all of Egypt. We read at first their father refused to believe. His heart became numb. This was too good to be true. This was too shocking. He refused to believe it. But only after being confronted with mounting evidence, as they, as they were relaying the words of Joseph, and as he, be, he looked out the window and he saw the wagons loaded with all sorts of gifts and all of these things, as he's confronted with this mounting evidence to back up the story, we read that his spirit came alive and he believed the story. In verse 28, he says, it's enough. It's as if he's telling his, his sons, okay, you don't have to convince me anymore. I'm convinced. I believe it, that Joseph is alive and resolves now to make his way down to Egypt to see his long-lost son before he dies. In our passage today, as we summarize, we see Joseph in this remarkable story, in this remarkable position of being exalted in power after having, been suffer, after having suffered for so long, he is exalted and yet he is offering freely forgiveness to his brothers and protection for them and their families. We see here Joseph serve as a type of Christ, as the one who is exalted above all things and who offers us forgiveness and protection with his presence. And yet in the same way that that news was so shocking, so impossible that they couldn't even believe it at first, that Jacob's heart became numb, it reminds me of another time in which news was too difficult to believe. And that, of course, was the news that was brought to the apostles early Sunday morning after the crucifixion of Jesus. As the women, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and other women, came and told the apostles that the tomb was empty, that an angel appeared and said that Jesus is risen, we read that these words seemed to the apostles as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Just like Jacob, their heart was numb, 
they refused to believe the good news that Jesus had been raised. And one of them, on another occasion, one of them who wasn't there when Jesus appeared, of course, Thomas, said, unless I touch him with my hands, unless I see the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet, I will never believe. To which Jesus, of course, appears to him. And, and Thomas says that he does believe, my Lord and my God. And Jesus replied to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, that's the position we are in now. We have the good news of salvation. That Jesus, having suffered for our sins, even when we were his enemies, is now raised and offering us forgiveness of sins and and his protective presence through his spirit. We are in that position to receive that good news and to embrace it by faith. As the Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you're here with us today and you have not done this, you have not embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and received the forgiveness that he offers, I implore you to be reconciled to God, to do that now. And yet if you have done that, and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, keep in mind that God continues to call us to walk by faith and not by sight. He continues to call us to believe in these promises that we will be saved. You think, I, I think so often it's easy for us to read a passage like this today and say, well, of course it was easy for Joseph to be kind and gracious to his brothers. He was exalted over all of Egypt. He saw the end game. He he was experiencing the silver lining. He could say that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and it, it was all working together for good. And yet you may be here today, and you may not feel like Joseph in the palace. You may feel like Joseph in the pit. And as you look at your present circumstances, you cannot fathom how God can work together those things for good. And you may wonder, how is it that God's in control here? God calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. And he assures us in his word. He reminds us of this message of reconciliation that nothing will separate us from the love of God and that he will work all things together for good for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because if he could take the crucifixion of the Son of God and turn that for good, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. Amen.